we are. Lent has begun. It's the first weekend of Lent. And during the season of Lent, the Christian world turns its thoughts towards sin, temptation, repentance, following Jesus as he walks to the cross, and in all of those things, reminding ourselves of what matters most, that there is a Savior, there is someone who delivers us from evil, and it can happen for you today. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. This is the place where we challenge each other to have faith, and we're going to look at faith in a rather specific way today, and I'm going to talk about Jesus and his faith. Now, I remember when I first heard someone talk about the faith of Jesus, I thought that was really odd. I thought, what do you mean, the faith of Jesus? Jesus is God. Well, I really hadn't thought about it from the perspective they were suggesting, and it is worth thinking about, by the way, and I would encourage you to join me in thinking about the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus have faith? And if we say yes, what do we mean when we say Jesus had faith? Well, one of the things that I'm going to suggest that Jesus had when he had faith was he had absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And if you've listened to the program before, you know that that's what we call faith. Here we say faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So did Jesus have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? Well, we're going to take a look at that, and you can decide that for yourself. I think it's fairly obvious, but we won't get too far ahead of ourselves. But maybe maybe we should at least at this point ask ourselves, do we have faith? Do we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? And that could apply in a lot of ways, and you may think about it in a way that I don't think about it. You might ask yourself, do we have absolute confidence that God is trustworthy to handle the difficulties of life that I encounter? You might ask yourself, is God trustworthy to provide for something when I need it? Is God trustworthy that if he doesn't provide what I think he should, that I can still have confidence in him, or does my faith, my confidence in God, depend upon God doing what I want him to do or what I think he should do? You see, we get all kind of confused in some of those kind of things, and we want to, we want to unpack a little bit this idea of faith, and particularly the faith of Jesus, or we could say the faithfulness of Jesus, because those are kind of intertwined. They, we talk about them a little bit differently sometimes, but we're going to talk about the faithfulness of Jesus, then we have to ask ourselves, are we faithful? So what are you faithful in when it comes to your commitments to Christ? Are you faithful in church attendance? Are you faithful in reading the Bible? Are you faithful in doing the things God says do and not doing the things the things God says don't? Are you faithful? That's an important question, don't you think? Because if we are saying we are Christians, if we are saying we follow Jesus, then doesn't that mean we are going to be faithful? Or do you want to talk about it in some 
esoteric, high-minded way and say, well, I'm full of faith. I don't have to measure it by all of those things. And to that, I would say there's a theological word for that attitude, and that's called baloney. To that, I would say we need to stop and realize that we demonstrate our faith in God, our faith in Jesus, our faithfulness to God by what we do. And heaven and earth sees what we do, and we declare before heaven and earth our faithfulness to God by what we do and what we don't do. Well, let's take a look. I want to plunge in today to the story of Jesus, and we generally call it Jesus' temptation, or the temptation of Jesus. The story comes from Matthew chapter 4, as we're looking at it today. It's also in Luke and Mark, but we're looking at it from Matthew chapter 4 this time. Chronologically, the event takes place right after Jesus' baptism. And that's significant for a couple of reasons. We'll talk about some of that. But I just want the story to to begin to introduce us to some of these ideas. And so I want to read the story from Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. But I want to read it from a different English translation than what I generally use here on the program. Not because the one I usually use isn't okay. It is. It's fully adequate, and I will refer to it. But I want to read it from this one because it, in some ways, brings it home to us and makes it a little bit more, uh, how should I say, like it fits the context of our lives. It, it may, just, may just communicate in a way that helps you think about this story of Jesus, maybe in a way you haven't thought of before. So I want to read the story from The Message. The Message is an English translation that was done by Eugene Peterson. It's widely recognized for its value. It's also recognized that it's not a standard translation. It's not some some translation that I would do careful study from, but it really does tell a story in a way that helps cultivate our understanding and and helps us think about these things that may be familiar to us, maybe not, in a little different way because of the way Eugene Peterson communicates it. And Eugene Peterson was a faithful pastor for many years, and I like that he brings pastoral perspective to the things that he wrote and including this translation. He wants people to understand. He wants to help people as a pastor tries to help people. So, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Next, and that's because this is after the baptism, so verse 1. Next, Jesus was taken into the wild by the Spirit for the test. The devil was ready to give it. Jesus prepared for the test by fasting 40 days and 40 nights. That left him, of course, in a state of extreme hunger, which the devil took advantage of in the first test. This is the devil speaking. Since you are God's son, speak the word that will turn these stones into loaves of bread. End of the devil's statement. Verse 4, Jesus picks it up. Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy. It takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. For the second test, the devil took him to the holy city. He sat him on top of the temple and said, Since you are God's son, jump. The devil goaded him by quoting Psalm 91. He has placed you in the care of angels. They will catch you so that you won't so much as stub your toe on a stone. Jesus countered with another citation from Deuteronomy. Don't you dare test the Lord your God. 
For the third test, the devil took him to the peak of a huge mountain. He gestured expansively, pointing out all the kingdoms of the uh, all the earth's kingdoms, how glorious they all were. Then he said, "They're yours, lock, stock, and barrel. Just go down on your knees and worship me, and they're yours." Jesus' refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. He backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only Him. Serve Him with absolute single-heartedness. The test was over. The devil left. And in his place, angels. Angels came and took care of Jesus' needs. And that's through verse 11 of Matthew chapter 4. What a remarkable story. What an interesting statement. What an interesting story. And, and Jesus is put to the test, as it says. And you might wonder about that use of the word test. Well, let's just clarify that a little bit. Usually we refer this to the, we refer this to the story of the temptation of Jesus. I understand that. You may have heard it that way. Uh, Reverend Peterson, Pastor Peterson, refers to it as the test. Well, really, when you look at the language using the word test is a better translation of the word there. So that the use of the word test corresponds to what we're going to take a look at in a minute, the Old Testament occurrence of Israel being tested. So don't be alarmed by that test. Don't think somebody's trying to change the Bible. I'm I'm regularly, as a pastor, both alarmed and concerned and sometimes a little irritated because sometimes people want to make too much of, of the fact that one translation uses one word and another one uses another, and then they think that somebody's trying to change the Bible on them. Well, I've not found any instances where there's any plot to change the Bible and to mislead you. Different translators, for reasons of their own, will use different words because they're just trying to express the sense of what the Bible is saying. It's not about trying to keep something from you or to trick you or to put words in God's mouth or to leave something out. In fact, I regularly benefit from the different ways that different English translations put it because it helps me think about that and not become so focused on one particular idea that I forget to think about what else might be going on in the story, what else might be going on in the scripture. So don't be upset by that word tested. That really corresponds to what happened in Israel in the days following the exodus from Egypt. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But before we get there, we have to ask a very important question. So clearly, Satan comes to Jesus and offers him three opportunities to do what Satan asks. Three temptations, three tests. Well, for these to be genuine temptations or tests, then we have to ask another question. We have to ask a a serious question, and some of you might think, well, this is obvious, and maybe it is. But I think it's something we shouldn't go past too quickly. So here's the question. Could Jesus sin? Now, immediately, some people tend to get a little upset by asking that question. Well, who do you think you are saying that about the Son of God who come, comes in, in human flesh to save the world from its sin. Okay, I get all that. I, I'm not saying, 
otherwise I'm simply asking the question that many other people have asked and need to think about could Jesus sin well one of the alarming things to me is that a number of people in North America a number of Americans are starting to come to the conclusion that yes Jesus did sin he wasn't sinless. Now, the Bible teaches that he was sinless. And yet they're coming to the conclusion, I'm not sure on what evidence they're coming to that conclusion. I don't sure know where they get that idea. I tend to think it's because they know how much they have sinned. And they probably then assume that if they sinned, then probably Jesus did but that's not really a safe assumption. That's assuming something that we don't know just based upon how we are. And Jesus was how we are, but he was different than how we are. And it does matter whether or not it was possible for Jesus to sin. And it matters if Jesus actually did sin. So let's talk about the first thing just a little bit. Could Jesus sin? And uh, Without a hesitation, I say, yes, he could have. There is ample evidence in the Bible that he came as a human. The Bible tells us he was tempted in all the ways we have been tempted. He wasn't exempt from any of that. But the Bible also says he was tempted, but he did not sin. And, of course, we see that in this story that we just read, that he was tempted, but he did not sin. Now, this story, of course, is not the whole of Jesus' life. But we have the testimony of those who wrote the scriptures for us that Jesus did not sin. Okay, so that's part of it. He did not sin. But, but if he did not, does that mean he could not or could he have sinned? And it matters. And, of course, the Bible reminds us, and it's been the historic understanding of Christians forever, that, yes, Jesus could have sinned. Temptation was real to him. He could have. He went through things you and I will likely never even come close to going through, and yet he did not sin. But it is clear from the Bible that he could have. And so that's an important thing for us to understand. He could have, but he did not. Now, what do we mean in this sense by sin? Well, I realize there's a lot been written about sin, and the way I think we need to think about this, and that I found most helpful and I believe is most biblical, is to think about sin in the way that it's played out here in this story, but also in the way we generally think about it. So Jesus was tempted in three different ways, and he could have yielded to that temptation, and he could have sinned. He would have known what he was doing. He would have been doing it on purpose. Now, I know some people teach. Some people believe. I respect them for that. I vehemently disagree with them. But they teach and believe that Christians sin every day in thought, word, and deed. And I don't believe that's the biblical approach. So I just want to be straight with you about that. How self-defeating is it to believe that you sin every day? How limiting of the power of the cross of Christ when you believe that you sin every day. Is it not possible, as the scriptures indicate, for us to be set free from that so that we live a different life, so that we pursue 
the high calling of Jesus? So I don't believe that it's proper to understand sin as something that we do every day in thought, word, and deed. I would be pretty sure that most of us are tempted every day to sin, but I'm not convinced that we have to. And that's a big difference in the have to versus the opportunity to. And some of this difference of understanding comes down to a difference in definition of sin. And I believe, I'm convinced, that the way we define sin has so much to do with how we behave and yeah, how we misbehave. So I like John Wesley's definition of sin. That sin is a willful transgression against the known law of God. So let's make sure we think about that a little bit before we get too far along here. First of all, it's a willful transgression. In other words, Wesley said, you do it and you know you're doing it. Or you don't do it and you know you're not doing it. And if God has asked you to do something and you refuse, that can be sin as well. So it's a willful transgression. It's willfully going against God. Willful transgression against the known law of God. So against the known which means you know what you're doing. You might possibly do something that God would rather you didn't do, but if you don't know it, Wesley said, then you're not held responsible in the same way as you are when you know it. So when you're young and foolish, as opposed to old and foolish, you might do something and you don't realize what you did. Well, once you realize what you did, then you become responsible to not do it again. So that's the known law of God. For example, it's real simple. If you know you shouldn't steal, and you do, don't you? Then don't steal. It's that simple. Now, if perchance you have never heard that you shouldn't steal, then maybe you stole without realizing you shouldn't. That's pretty unlikely, but you get the idea. I sometimes say, and I don't don't know, every time I say this, I think it's the most ridiculous explanation, but it does seem to help. Uh, I I often say that I regularly wear wear a belt, which keeps my pants in place, and I'm happy to wear a belt. I've never had a problem with it, never been reluctant to. As far as I know, that's okay with God. But if I were to discover later today or tomorrow or sometime that, that God said to me that it's a sin to wear a belt, then I would need to stop wearing a belt and find another way to keep my pants in place. Well, I get get it. That's just ridiculously silly. Okay, I'm not trying to be ridiculously silly. I'm trying to make the point that Wesley helped us by pointing out that sin is a willful transgression against the known law of God. So when you know better, do better. That's the idea. And a sin relates to God because it's God that sets the standard. Willful transgression against the known law of God, the person who sets the standard. So, could Jesus sin? He could have, but he didn't. We know there's abundant evidence of testimony and scripture that he did not sin. It matters that he did not sin. Absolutely matters that he did not sin. So, when we come to this story, Recognizing that it's possible, it makes us think about it just a little bit differently. Because if we come to the story and we think Jesus could not sin, then 
well, what's the point? You know, why are we even thinking about the story at all? Because if, if he couldn't, it, it really doesn't matter that he didn't. Well, and it might mean that Jesus wasn't fully human. And that matters too, because the Bible teaches that he was just like us in every respect. He understood the human condition. And just a reminder, if he did sin, he would no longer be qualified to atone for the sin of the world. So he did not sin. He remains the Savior. He is, was, always will be the one who satisfied the problem of sin, who atoned for it. And we can rejoice in that. Maybe the reason, and let's just think about it again, maybe the reason people don't believe that Jesus lived a sinless life is because they've given hope. They've given up hope that they can be better, different. And I want to assure you that you can be different. By the grace of God, you can be different. So let's approach it with that understanding and then see what we can benefit from that. Let's approach it recognizing that we don't have to sin and we can stand up to temptation. And what do we do about all of that? It really does matter because Jesus' response to temptation demonstrated that he had confidence in God. He had faith. He had absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. He quoted the scripture. He referred Satan to what God had said. And that really is significant because we can learn from that and we can rejoice in that Jesus showed Satan that he didn't have to and that therefore we don't have to. And he gave us some some marvelous examples that we can learn from and emulate and benefit from. Now, to begin looking at this, we, have, we remind ourselves again that this story took place following the baptism of Jesus. Now, it was significant that the baptism of Jesus, what happened? Well, he went to John and asked to be baptized, and John baptized him, baptized him and, and uh, when he came up out of the waters, the Spirit of God descended from heaven. The heavens were torn apart, one of the Gospels says, and the Spirit came down and entered into Jesus. So we see the presence of the Spirit entering into Jesus, and then, very interestingly, in Mark, or, sorry, Matthew, we're in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, we read that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So, right along at the very beginning, the Spirit of God is involved in all of this. And we're seeing set up a battle between the Spirit of God in Jesus and Satan and his temptation. We're seeing, I suppose you could call it this, people don't tend to think of it this way, you could call it a spiritual warfare about to take place between Jesus and Satan. Now, it says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. So the leading of the Spirit was purposeful, and it was intentional, and it was in set up so Jesus was tested by the devil. It also says that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Well, now, first thought of that for most of us is, wow, he was hungry. 
He was weaker probably because of not eating for that time. That would be normal for people, for a human condition. Well, that's true. But did you hear what Eugene Peterson said in the message? He described that fasting as preparation for the temptation. We don't usually think about it that way, but I thought that was very insightful. We tend to think of fasting as, well, if we fast, maybe God will be impressed by our fast and he will give us what we want. But in this case, Jesus seems to have been fasting in preparation for having it out with Satan and winning that contest. So along comes Satan. Jesus is prepared for him, having been led by the Spirit, having fasted and prepared spiritually for this, apparently. And Satan comes along and says, If you are the Son of God, isn't that interesting. What have we just learned in the context of this story? We have just learned that Jesus was the Son of God. What happened at his baptism? Well, a voice from the heavens, God's voice says, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So we know he's the Son of God. There is no doubt all heaven and earth knows that. But along comes Satan. If you are the Son of God. Well, do we really think Satan needed more evidence or validation that Jesus was the Son of God? No, I don't think we do. And, and do we really think Jesus needs to prove anything to the devil? No, I don't think we really do. But isn't it interesting how the devil comes along and says, if. And he probably says that to us sometimes. If you do this, then you'll have this. If this, then that. And sometimes we fall for that. Jesus didn't. He didn't fall for it at all. He faced up to three temptations, head on, straight up, and answered back appropriately, decisively, and he accomplished what we have not, did not, arguably could not. He resisted all three temptations. So let's just start with the first one. We'll have to take a break in a minute, but we'll, we'll get the first one looked at. First of all, the tempter comes along, Satan himself, and he says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, okay, Jesus is hungry, needing something to eat. What's the harm? As far as we know in the Bible, there is no inherent harm in turning stones into bread. Jesus would not have likely been able to quote any verse where it says turning stones to bread is wrong. But notice what Jesus does say. He doesn't say that to Satan and then say, okay, so I will. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't fall for that nonsense. What Jesus says is it, it is written, quoting the scriptures. It is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, isn't that interesting? Are you hungry right now? How many of us, we get hungry and we think, oh, I've got to find something to eat. When we could probably go for a while without it. And Jesus doesn't deny that we need to eat. That's not it at all. Don't, don't think that. He, he recognizes that need, but he says we also need the words of God. 
So I guess a good pastor would say at this point, do you consider your understanding and your nourishment from the Bible as important as not skipping lunch? I'm not telling you to skip lunch. I'm asking you, do you consider God's word, as Jesus says, every word that comes from the mouth of God, do you consider that as essential as eating lunch? I've heard of people, maybe you do this, I'm not quite so legalistic in my own thinking about it, but I think it's a worthwhile discipline if it helps. I've heard of people who absolutely refuse to eat breakfast in the morning until they've read some portion of the Bible that they've decided to follow. I think we need to ask ourselves. I think we're all too casual about some of these kind of things, and we don't realize that, that we need this steady diet of food, appropriate food, healthy food, but we also need the appropriate diet of the Bible. And just as one meal doesn't suddenly sustain my life, one chapter from the Bible isn't going to make or break or turn my life upside down, but the steadiness will. And that's what I think we need to emphasize, that we need to consider the comparison Jesus makes and allow ourselves the luxury of the scriptures. Well, we're going to get into the other temptations and a few more things. I'm so glad you've joined us today, and I really hope this helps because we, we need help wrestling with sin and the concept and what to do about it, what we can do about it, and what the Bible says to us about it. And we're going to talk about that. In case you don't know, I'm Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, where we bring you this program because we want you to have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we'll be right back in just a minute. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. 
are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we understand faith to be absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been looking at the story of the testing or temptation of Jesus from Matthew chapter 4, and we've been learning along the way that Jesus was faithful, and Jesus had faith in God. He trusted God, and we're going to see that more as we go along. We talked about the first temptation, turning stones into bread, and we talked about how important we should think about the Word of God as important on a level with our daily bread. And I wonder if you noticed that when Jesus answered Satan, he said, one does not live by bread alone. Live. So in other words, to survive, Jesus is saying, we need bread. We need food. It's necessary. But he's saying to live, we also need God's words to us. I think that's very significant, and we should not miss that. So Jesus rebukes Satan on his first temptation, and now we turn to the next one, and it says, The devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. Well, the holy city would be Jerusalem. The pinnacle of the temple would be God's temple there, and there was a high point of that temple, and it would have been a long way down from there. It would have been a fatal fall from that point. And again, listen to what the devil says, if you are the Son of God. Now, we know Jesus is the Son of God, because in the context, we know from the baptism that God said, this is my Son. So we know Jesus is the Son of God. We know Satan knows that. But again, he's saying, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Interesting, isn't it? So again, there's this if statement, if you are the Son of God, prove to me you are the Son of God, as if the devil needed more proof. He didn't, and we don't either. Throw yourself down. Because after all, the Bible you just quoted, Jesus, says that God will take care of you. Now notice that Jesus' response to the devil's first temptation was to quote the Scripture back to him. Scripture from Deuteronomy, back to him. And now... The devil comes along and takes that same scripture and quotes it to Jesus to justify his statement that God will take care of you. Go ahead, jump off here, throw yourself down. Nothing's going to happen to you. And Jesus, responding again with the scriptures, says to Satan, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, that's something we should remember, don't you think? It's all too easy for us to say to God, if this, then that. And Jesus is saying, don't be putting God to the test. That is entirely inappropriate. Our response to God should be what? One of confidence and trust, not one of 
test. And we need to make sure we understand that. We need to make sure we understand that our responsibility is to develop confidence and faith, not test God to see if he is who he says he is. We have all the evidence we need, really. Just a question of whether we want to accept it. And a lot of times we make other conditions because we don't really want to accept it. All right. So then the devil takes Jesus up a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, this is really quite interesting here. There is a sense in which the devil has some place in the world, but let's not forget that here he is speaking to the Son of God, and notice he doesn't mention that again. He just asked Jesus to worship him. And the devil knows what we know, that Jesus was there with God at creation. So all of creation is Jesus' domain. He has all of creation. The devil doesn't need to give it to him, but he's appealing to Jesus in a way that sometimes he appeals to us. Well, if you follow Jesus, you won't have this, and you won't get that, and you won't have the other thing. And Jesus is going to ask you to give him what he's already given you back in tithes and offerings, and who knows what else might go on in our heads over the things. And here, Jesus puts it all so clearly, so plainly. What's he say? Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So Jesus knew, we know. Jesus knew that we were to serve God and only God, not to serve Satan, not to worship him. And he quotes the scripture, and Satan knows it, and we all know it. And it doesn't matter what comes along, worshiping God is paramount. Everything else falls by the wayside. It doesn't matter what we think we might get by either position or power or money or privileges or opportunities or anything else like that. It doesn't matter. We're supposed to worship God and him only. And Jesus, again, quotes the scriptures to remind us of that. Now, there's a very interesting parallel in these temptations with what took place in the Old Testament. I'm regularly fascinated by how the Old Testament story helps us understand things that go on in the New Testament, and so it does here, because there's a, a fascinating parallel. Here, Jesus overcomes all these temptations, these three temptations. And yet, Israel did not overcome these temptations. So, you read the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. And what happens? Well, they go to Sinai, and then they go on from there. And sure enough, along the way, they start complaining about not having enough to eat. Here's Jesus. He spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting. He's hungry. He doesn't worry about not having enough to eat. He knows God can take care of all that he needs. And Israel comes out from Egypt and has not learned that lesson because suddenly they're concerned about food. What are we going to eat? How are we going to survive? And yes, God does meet their needs. And you remember that God provided manna for them. They collected manna every morning so they would have something to eat. God was faithful to them, but they complained and learned that lesson. 
They didn't pass the test, shall we say. Well, they go along a little farther, and they, uh, they worry about God's protection from enemies. And sure enough, they complain, and they're worried and all that. And it first shows up at, at the Jordan when they're afraid Pharaoh is going to catch them and crush them. But they don't realize that they can trust in God and that they should. And when God promises to be their God and protect them, he meant it. And they should have depended upon that, but they passed, they, they passed right along, overlooked that, passed through the wilderness, worried about this and worried about that, and they failed that test of trusting God. See, this is why it's so important for us to come to grips with absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Will we pass life's tests for us? Can we? Sure we can. The question is, will we? Well, and then, of course... Among the most tragic things that we read in the Bible is the many times that God's people abandoned God and began to worship idols. They began to b- make images and bow down to worship them. There are stories in the scriptures about how they even sacrificed their children to these idols. Absolutely tragic, heartbreaking, unimaginable to us. They failed that test as well because they did not remain faithful to God. Yes, they had life's challenges and we have life's challenges. The question is not, will we have challenges in life? I've lived not as long as you have maybe, but long enough to know that life is almost one challenge after another. Now, it's a little bit cynical to say it that way, and I don't mean to be cynical. All I mean to say is, We are going to have challenges in in this life. There's no question about it. We're going to have tests where we have to determine to remain faithful to God. We've seen that most recently in, in the COVID stuff and the church's response to that. And we will see it again in other things. And we need, as God's people, to have confidence in God and to anchor and orient our decisions in the Bible and in what God calls us to do and what he warns us not to do. It, it really does matter. And Israel failed the test. And, and the contrast to give us hope is that Jesus passed the test because we need a Savior. We need someone to deliver us from evil, and he is the one. It's also interesting to dial that back even a little further and to realize that Adam and Eve did not pass the test either. I like to think about that story, and I, and I think about it from time to time. I, I, I'm convinced it tells us so many important things. But among them is the fact that God gave them one prohibition. One, don't eat of that tree. Stay away from it. Don't eat it. And what happens? They turned around, and they didn't have confidence. They didn't trust God. They wanted to be like God and do their own thing, and they ate from that tree. They did not pass the test. By contrast, Jesus passed test after test after test and showed us a better way and became for us the Savior who takes away the sin of the world. We can learn from Jesus, and we can rejoice in what he has accomplished for us. It is simply 
remarkable. So, knowing that we, yeah, did not pass the test, knowing that we are, how should I say, those who sin and need a Savior, what can we do about this business of sin? What do we do about it? Now, some people say, and I mentioned this earlier, that they can't help it. They're going to sin every day in thought, word, and deed, and I say baloney to that. But we also know that we can't deliver ourselves from evil. We pray in the Lord's Prayer regularly, and if you don't pray the Lord's Prayer frequently, I want to encourage you to do that. It's a great spiritual help. It covers so many things. We pray that God would deliver us from evil, and He came to do just that. We recognize that we cannot save ourselves because we recognize the influence and the the culpability we have because of sin. And what we need is we need a Savior who delivers us from evil. And we have a Savior who delivers us from evil. Now, I don't know where you are on all of that. Occasionally, I've heard people say, and it always gets my attention, and well, I have a certain amount of compassion for people who say this, and, and I understand remorse for sin, but people will say, well, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, I understand, and I'm glad you feel bad for what you've done. But you know, I sometimes wonder if that's a statement that people make as an excuse rather than a statement of fact. Maybe they say it as an excuse so they can continue on in sin in a certain way. If that's you, you need to at least face up to that and say, I'm just kidding myself because I just want to keep on sinning. And so I make that statement and I look really spiritual making that statement. I just can't forgive myself. How, who's going to help me? And you know, I don't read any place in the Bible where that it says you need to forgive yourself because it's against God that you sinned and he's the one that needs to forgive you. And he invites you into that forgiveness. But inherent in that forgiveness comes the willingness to lay down sin. So let's not kid ourselves into thinking we're so bad that we can't forgive ourselves. And how's God going to deal with that? Let's not kid ourselves with all that. Let's understand that God can and does forgive sins. He can and will forgive you. If you are repentant and determined to change your life, if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, if your allegiance is to Jesus alone, your life will change. But if you're just skating along thinking, well, I'm, woe is me, I can't forgive myself, at least give yourself the honest truth, are you hiding your unwillingness to change your life? Are you hiding behind that in a sign of a pseudo-spiritual way that says, well, you know, I just can't forgive myself, woe is me. Now, pastorally, I want you to understand what I just said, that God can forgive and does, and we should not hide our sin. But also, pastorally, I sometimes want to say, get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done and your willingness to embrace that. And if you are willing to change your life and follow him, he will change your life.
because he is the one who gives us victory over all of that stuff. And I sometimes think we just refuse to accept that. And isn't that tragic that we refuse to accept that? Isn't that tragic that we, that we don't allow the Savior of the world to come and do his work in our hearts to make the difference? See, one of the important lessons of this whole story of Jesus is that there is victory, that we don't have to live in defeat, that Jesus shows us that, that there is a victor over sin and over Satan. And, and we don't want to get so focused on the temptation that we forget that, that the challenge is to recognize that Jesus conquered. Jesus is the overcomer. Our challenge is to, to follow him and to allow the Spirit of God to make us new and to allow the gift of God's Spirit to give us the power, the same power that helped Jesus because the Spirit was in him, too. That same Spirit is in his people today. And we need to stand up to realize that God makes us, as the Bible says, more than conquerors. We don't want to get caught up in the, oh, woe is me, poor me, there's nothing that can be done for me, I'm terrible. See, the real question may come down to, are you willing to turn away from what God says turn away from? and turn to Jesus. And then will you receive God's gift of grace to make you new? And I want to say just a word about the revival that's been going on at Asbury. I understand it's in its 15th day now. And some things are changing, and and I haven't been following it quite as closely as I was. I still rejoice, and I want to talk about the the shift in that revival that I think is, is motivated by enormous wisdom from God. But before we get there, what is that revival about? That's about our willingness to repent, to change our lives, and receive what God has for us. And, and part of the question then becomes, you may not go to Asbury, but can Asbury come to you? And the answer is, of course it can, because the Spirit of God is everywhere. You don't have to go to Asbury for Asbury to come to you. And the question becomes, in no small measure, are you ready to receive what God has for you? Are you ready to say, thanks be to God who gives me the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to say, I renounce all that I have been and I turn toward Jesus to embrace all that he is? Are you ready to say, I'm going to demonstrate my faith by my faithfulness, and I'm going to live life as a person who has absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that is demonstrated in small things and big things. And God will talk to you about whatever small or big thing he has in mind for you, and I trust him to do that. I don't even have to name any examples because the Spirit of God is faithful to show us the way we need to go. The real question is, will we go and then will we receive what God has for us? That becomes the question. Now, a word about the Asbury Revival, as it's been called. Asbury, because it's Asbury University and in the same town is Asbury Theological Seminary. Those organizations, those schools, have their roots in historic Methodism, going back to John Wesley and the 
Methodist holiness movement in this country. Why God chose that place and this time, I do not know for sure. I think about it and I wonder about it, but I don't know. Maybe someday God will tell us why he did. But here we are, day 15, and, and by all accounts, this has extended farther beyond Wilmore, Kentucky, the site of Asbury University, Asbury Theological Seminary. It's, it's extended to other places around the country, and people are starting to track that. And I say, thanks be to God, let it extend wherever God wants it to go, and let it go to people who are willing to receive what God has for them. And if it's young people, wonderful. If it's older people, wonderful. If it's you and not me, wonderful. I have no jealousy, and I do not want to develop any jealousy about what God is doing or not doing. I hope you feel that same way. I want to trust God to do what he will do and let him do it. Now, recognizing that God has been remarkably present there at Asbury, particularly in that auditorium, Hughes Auditorium, things are starting to change relative to the Asbury revival. And the president of the university has been shepherding what's going on along with other leaders there. And some people are getting a little concerned that it's changing. But I want to read to you what was posted by Jim Garlow. He got it from a Facebook account by his own statement. It's on his website, wellversedworld.org. If you want to look for Asbury information, wellversedworld.org is a great place. But he quoted a man named Lawson Stone. Lawson Stone is one of the elders of of the Christian faith, and he's been there and seeing what's going on. And the revival is shifting from a come mode to ascending mode. People have descended on Wilmore. They've all come to see what God is doing. There were so many people over the last weekend, I understand they closed the town, wouldn't let more people in. But now he's saying it's shifting. Lawson Stone is saying it's shifting from a come to ascend mode. And here's what he wrote. Let me just read it. It's winding down the public services on the campus though they can and will continue in other places in town as long as they want. But it's generally felt that the focus needs to shift to resuming lives of fruitful service and, in many cases, heading out across the country with the gospel. We can't stay on the mountain indefinitely. Some will try to put up tents for Moses and Elijah, but the leadership in town has felt strongly that the time has come to get to work, get back to work, all bet on a new level. Realize, though, that I am not among the leadership. I don't speak for anybody but myself, and I'm not even sure I'm on my. I'm not even sure I'm my own authorized spokesman. That's what Lawson Stone said. I think there's great wisdom in that. Wonderful wisdom, that they are recognizing that what God has given them there is not meant for them to jealously guard or to hoard or to keep to themselves but that a genuinely genuine outpouring of God's spirit a genuine revival whatever you want to call this needs to go from there to everywhere and so they're beginning to think about how they take what God has given them the gift that God has given them they're beginning to think how do they share that beyond that small town of Wilmore Kentucky and I think that's just great wisdom. Now, I know some people are saying, well, they're changing that and all this kind of stuff. They're going to quench the Spirit of God. Well, I don't think so. I believe that the people that are involved here, and I don't know them personally, but I do know by reputation, and I do believe that the people who are speaking are honest and true, and they desire 
revival and renewal as much as anyone. And I trust them. And I think we need to trust the work of God in their lives. But they're beginning to see this as a shift. And they're recognizing that, that yes, there was a moment, days even, where things were very different. But now, God is saying, it's time to go down from the mountain out to other places. And who knows, maybe someone who has been to Wilmore and experienced what God has done will come to you and your church and give testimony. And you will begin to realize in a way you couldn't have otherwise what's going on because they came to you. They didn't stay in Wilmore. Moses came down from the mountain and shared with the people and now these people who are going to give testimony to what God has done are going to spread across the country and hopefully around the world to invite people to be faithful followers of the one who delivers us from evil, forgives our sin, makes us new, reconciles us with him, and gives us the hope and the promise of one day a home in heaven like nothing we could imagine. And we'll be in, could we say, will more type place forever. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm so glad you've joined us, and I hope you will hear the message from Jesus today, that he has overcome the evil one, and you can too, and I hope you will trust him. We're going to have faith, confidence in God, and I invite you to join us again next week.